Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is probably the, my most favorite title <laughs> of a presentation today. So excited to welcome Saskia DeVilt from Queen's University, Canada. And uh, to just uh, give apologies because her co-presenter has not been able to make it. So we, uh, we wish uh, him well. The title of uh, their presentation or Saskia's presentation uh, today is Exploring Polar Bear Research as Ethical Space, Practice and Process of Engagement. And just to tell you a little bit about Saskia. Uh, Saskia DeVilt is a creator researcher She's currently a PhD veneer scholar at Queen's University Canada, but has her roots in the Netherlands. So Bella, there's your connection. Her work transcends boundaries and binaries, but always gravitates close to decolonial theory, sensory ethnography and art. She's interested in applying art direction, performance art and critical theory towards sustainable development and conservation challenges. So in this presentation, Saskia will present on, the, on her collaborative work with uh, Leonard Netzer uh, towards polar bear research as an ethical space, process, and practice of engagement. So before I welcome Saskia, I should ask you all to please have a pen and paper ready because we're going to have an exam at the end of this to see if you're all listening. <laughs> Jokes. <laughs> please have a pen and paper ready and uh, welcome Saskia. Thank you, Tawana. <laughs> It's a quarter to eight right now in Coral Harbor, Nunavut, which is where I'm calling from. So yeah, uh, first of all, um, apologies for you just having me today. Uh, Leonard is dealing with some health issues and in combination with that, it's also springtime here. So there's very particular seasonal activities that are going on and he has to kind of like measure his energy for everything. So yeah, because of that, he's, uh, he's not able to join us. But everything that I'll be talking about today uh, is based on our uh, conversations and relationship that has been going on for about two, two and a half years now. So yeah, it's still collaborative work that I'll be presenting. And I hope uh, you will find it interesting. First of all, I guess uh, the main question is what, what do polar bears have to do with spring school on shared values, right? So yeah, and not being a straight uh, and obvious connection, I'll kind of give you a bit of an introduction of uh, why I actually think that polar bears are a very interesting conversation to have in a spring school like this. Because it's an animal that invokes really strong emotions, right? And, and different emotions for different people, depending on who you are and where you live. First of all, I think most of us, uh, the people that don't live in the Arctic or in a country that has like a significant part being covered by the Arctic, most of us are just being confronted with the image of a polar bear that invokes this image of the climate crisis, right? It's a flagship animal, an icon for uh, the climate crisis, like most of us are exposed to images of hungry polar bears jumping from ice sheet to ice sheet, kind of trying to find enough food. So yeah, I think for most of the non-Arctic people, this is what we think about when we think of polar bears. From an ecological or biodiversity perspective, Polar bears are valued in terms of being a key predator. They play a really important role in the environment. And, you know, they, they keep other species in balance, so to say, like seals, for example, which are their main prey. And then for scientists, polar bears are very valuable in terms of the fact that they kind of cross over a really large part of the Arctic. And because they're on top of the food chain, if you monitor polar bears and the health of polar bears, you actually monitor quite a lot of other animals in the area as well. So yeah, in terms of scientific value and being like a, a way of monitoring, like these are incredibly valuable animals in that sense as well. But then if you kind of cross over into a more of a, a local community-based perspective, we really start looking at polar bears in terms of relationships. Inuit view polar bears as kin right? They're more than human relative. They're both apex predators in, in this environment here. And they're very much challenged towards each other. They, they share kind of a special connection from an Inuit traditional knowledge perspective. So 
Inuit people refer to their like larger body of values and knowledge and belief systems as Inuit Kwayamayatukangit, the mouthful. <laughs> uh, but the Inuit Kwayamayatumangit speaks of uh, the first human being a polar bear. And if you if you actually skin a polar bear, it actually looks like a like a very muscular human. So yeah, this is all to say that polar bear from an Inuit perspective is, is like a more than human relative and very much valued for that reason. They're also, they provide cultural sustenance, right? Inuit hunt polar bears, they still do. For their meat, they eat the polar bear meat, but they also use the hide for clothing or uh, sled runners. And they also provide an economic source of income. So within the Nunavut conservation management, Inuit are allowed to facilitate sports hunting and this is a, a very important source of income in a mixed Inuit community. So part of it is subsistence-based and another part of it lives on the income of sports hunting. And then finally, polar bears also, they facilitate a way of being. In hunting a polar bear, it's actually something that's very dangerous and very difficult. And not everybody can do it, right? You need to be a very skilled hunter in order to track down and kill a polar bear. And it also allows you to kind of travel the land in a way that no other animal would allow you to travel, right? If you would go hunt a seal, you wouldn't go out as far in the ice as you would when you would be hunting a polar bear. So this relationship between an Inuit hunter and a polar bear really facilitates this way of being with the land and being with this animal. So yeah, these are just a small selection of different ways of valuing polar bears. and. As might be obvious, some of these values, they exist in tension with each other. Some of them don't seem to like directly align with each other. And that really cuts to the core of what I want to talk to you about today. So the Spring Festival is about shared values, but sometimes values don't intersect with each other. So it's more about coming together in difference. And in the case of Leonard's and my collaboration, the land plays a really important role. So what, what I want to do today is kind of talk about coming together in difference through the practice of wayfaring. And well, like Juana said, I hope you have a piece of paper and a pen. Like uh, the first half, I'll be talking a little bit more about polar bear research and some of the theory behind coming together in difference or finding commonalities. And then the second half, I'm going to ask you to do a small exercise with me and we're going to explore together. Uh, hopefully through your experience I can learn something and hopefully through your experience you can learn something as well. So I'm hoping this is going to be also a coming together in difference together. So polar bears. <laughs> so they're valued by many different people in many different ways. However, what's maybe not as well known is that we don't really know how polar bears are doing right now. There's actually quite a big gap in our knowledge on, on how many polar bears there are and like I said, how they're doing. And the reason for that is that it's actually quite hard to monitor them, to research them through scientific monitoring. When you look at the map on the bottom left, you can see all the, the polar bear subpopulations that live across the Arctic. There's 19 subpopulations and these are surveyed through what they call management units. And 14 of them are in Canada. So Canada is a pretty important country when, when you look at how to manage polar bears. But many of these management units, they haven't been surveyed in the last 10 years. And some of them haven't even been surveyed in the last 20 years. So some of the knowledge that we have of polar bears, it's almost 20 years old. So why is that? One of the, re well, there's a couple of reasons. So it's very resource intensive, right? Like the way that you survey and, and monitor polar bears is through helicopters. So it's aerial surveys. You count the bears and sometimes you also dart them and take tissue samples. But, you know, you can't do this 12 months a year because it's a very harsh environment. So there's only like a couple of weeks, maybe, yeah, a couple of weeks in the spring and the summer that it's safe enough to actually fly and conduct these surveys. But then when you can do them, you can cover a really large area. So there's certain ups and certain downs around scientific monitoring of polar bears. I do also, I realize now that I forgot to say this, Leonard and I, uh, so we're part of a larger project called Bearwatch. And Bearwatch 
looks at how we can monitor polar bears in a non-invasive way. So without aerial surveys and without the darting of the bears, but we look at how to read how polar bears are doing from polar bear scat and the DNA that they leave in the environment through their prints and through their hairs. So yeah, <laughs> so we're trying to approach polar bear monitoring in a, in a bit of a different way. But nevertheless, there are shortcomings in scientific monitoring. And luckily, that is not the only way that we can know about polar bears because there's Inuit communities living in this area and they live with polar bears all throughout the year. So yeah, they know how they're doing like in the, in the summer, in the winter, in the spring, in the fall. And this knowledge isn't just individual observations, right? It's a, it's a communal observation that's being passed on from generation to generation. So it's really rich. Uh, if you want to speak of knowledge in terms of data, it's a really rich set of data. But it is limited in terms of geographical reach. It's knowledge is built up from uh, local and more traditional hunting grounds. So it doesn't cover like this entire management unit that scientific monitoring can do. So yeah, logically speaking, you would bring these two together. You would build on the strong parts of each knowledge system. And that's exactly what wildlife management and research in the Arctic often tries to do. It's also mandated. So the territory of Nunavut, it's wildlife management mandates. So it's co-governed between an Inuit government and the federal government. So it's quite progressive, at least on paper, in terms of indigenous self-determination. But as many things in practice, it does have its challenges and shortcomings. And one of them is this idea of knowledge integration. So this is, a, is an idealized graphic of how to bring these two knowledge systems together. But what is often overlooked is the power dynamics between these two groups. And as a result, what happens is that knowledge integration um, really becomes that. It becomes integrated, like incorporated into this more dominant body of euroscientific knowledge. And yeah, in reality, it's often knowledge appropriation. So if we want to move away from this, if we want like the coming together of knowledge not to transform into a knowledge appropriation, then what do we do? So what we're looking at, Leonard and I, is knowledge relating rather than integrating. And the first thing that you need to do if you want to look at relationships is actually disentangle the current way of how things are done. We need to kind of step back and make space, also referred to as decolonizing. So we first need to facilitate this movement where we open up space to then kind of contemplate how can we come back together in a more constructive or equal or ethical way. Then there's a lot of indigenous scholars that write about this. And I just want to point out two. So one of them is Braiding Knowledge by Robin Wall Kimmer. And I don't know if you have read her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. It's an amazing book. So I really recommend you, if you haven't read it, to read it. It's very accessible. And it's, yeah, so she talks about where each knowledge system is really respected in its own integral worth. But when you braid it together, it becomes a stronger string of knowledge. But each knowledge system is respected as itself. Um, so that's one way of talking about encountering again. And then the second one that I wanted to point out is Two-Eyed Seeing by Batiste and colleagues. So again, each knowledge system is respected in its own integral value. And then with Two-Eyed Seeing, basically you weave back and forth between each knowledge system, like depending on, on what your goal is. Uh, so you, you build on the strength of each knowledge system, but you still respect its differences and its own worth. So what we're doing is actually a little bit different. We're looking at this empty space between each knowledge system. So this space is a space of opportunity, but it's also a space of tension. So that's really what we're looking at. So this is what Ermine called the ethical space of engagement. And what it allows you to do is to talk about bringing together knowledge not based on data or like little bits and pieces of knowledge, but it looks at values and processes and practices. So really the ways in which you come together. And it allows you to kind of have a conversation on mutual agreed upon terms, like what are the conditions of coming together? So when you look at this, this is something that's incredibly hard to facilitate, right? This is not an easy thing. Like it's easy to put down on a PowerPoint, but how to do it is not as straightforward. So there's a couple of things that are an important part of this. First one is the 
decolonization part. If you're a Euroscientific counterpart of working together with different communities, like you have to both mentally and in, in your practices decolonize. You need to make that space. So that's first of all a condition uh, of creating this. Then secondly, when you come together in this ethical space of engagement, it's not just one moment of making an agreement of this is how we're going to come together. Like it's, it's an ongoing process where you're constantly becoming with the other, really. And this is also where arts come in, because arts as well, they don't look at one specific explanation of your work necessarily. It's an open invitation of people to come along and become other, not become the other, but become other. And, th and that's exactly what is happening in the ethical space of engagement. So it's just this ongoing process. And then thirdly, indigenous resurgence. You can't come together on an equal footing if you have to do so from a place from authority, of self-authority. And especially with a lot of indigenous communities, this requires healing and it requires cultural, cultural healing, basically. And that's something that as a Euroscientific counterpart, you need to also support, right? This is very important in terms of building relationships. So this is the framework that we're working with. And then as we move into the fun part, <laughs> we do so by kind of criticizing this image a little bit because it's still built on this very binary idea that we have different knowledge systems that are clearly bounded by thick lines, you know, and there's a clearly bounded ethical space of engagement that you can then enter. So there's boundaries that you need to cross and this idea of two bodies of knowledge that are being placed as opposite to each other, and then you can kind of overcome that difference, is thinking based in modernization thinking, a Western-based thinking. So what we're moving to is actually looking at this conversation as a landscape. So here you see Inuit Kwayamaya Tukangit on the right side, and you see Euroscientific knowledge on the left side this ethical space of engagement in the middle, but there's no real boundaries of where each knowledge system starts and ends. And that, if we start thinking about it in this way, then it really becomes about where do you stand in the landscape? Depending on literally when you're in the land, it's the same thing. Depending on where you stand, uh, you see different things. So it becomes a little bit less deterministic. Yes, it matters what the culture is, where you come from, but it also matters how you move through the world how you have built up your knowledge and your experiences and how you've moved through the knowledge landscape really also builds to the knowledge that, that you then have around what the world is like, how you know the world. Of course, this doesn't mean that there's no sacred spaces, that there's no off-limits parts of where cultural resurgence happens or, or places that are kept off-bounds for people that are not part of your of your culture but it's not as completely you know there's no thick line that you cannot cross at all it's here the sacred spaces are something that you could perhaps walk around so it becomes a feature in the landscape rather than a, a bounded space you're not allowed to enter and then if you look at the landscape in this way actually uh, maybe there's more ethical spaces right maybe there's multiple points where you pass kind of like walk in parallel next to each other you might have more moments where, where you exist in tension, but also an opportunity to move alongside each other through the land. So yeah, what we end up with here is a completely different image. It's kind of like a landscape, but also a map, like something that you can move through. And that's actually what, for the second half, uh, what I'd like to kind of like explore with you is this idea of wayfaring. So. This is uh, the wayfaring is a way of orienting in the landscape, but also moving through it. And as the previous map indicates, knowledge emerges along the path that you take through the landscape. And it happens between acting bodies and in relationship to the environment. So what I'd like you to do is with the piece of paper that you have and, and the pencil and the pen, I want to ask you to draw out a route to a place that you would go on, a, on an almost daily basis. So I think for a lot of people that would be like your, your neighborhood grocery store, you know, not necessarily where you would do like your weekly shopping of a lot of things, but maybe if you forgot a carton of milk or like a pack of cigarettes or whatever, just this route of a place that you very often visit. 
And as you draw out this route, I'm not going to give you a lot of rules, but one of the things I don't want you to do is to make like a Google Maps kind of image. But I really want you to maybe for a second, close your eyes and really imagine what are you seeing as you step out of the door? What are you smelling? What are you hearing? What are the textures? What weather is it? Also, uh, what do you need to navigate in this environment? Do you need to cross a, a busy road? Do you need to cross water? Do you take shortcuts? You know, maybe, maybe the path towards your grocery store doesn't make any sense and you just cut a corner and walk through the grass. So yeah, from a, from a sensory perspective, I'd like you to, I'm, I'm going to give you about seven minutes or so just to like draw out that route. Saskia, a quick question. It feels to me like it's better if it's a walking experience than driving. To me. Yes. Yes, I was meant to say that. Yeah, so thank you. It's actually quite important. Yeah, even if you live in a space where you don't often walk to the grocery store, maybe there's something else that, that you would walk to on a very frequent basis. Thank you. That's very crucial. <laughs> and another thing, sorry, don't think of street names when, when, when you're thinking of how you're navigating, but think specifically about landmarks. So certain features on your route that catch your eye for whatever reason and add them to your map.
Okay, so I'm gonna nudge you all slowly back from the paper. Hopefully that has kind of like taken you out of your chair and a little bit into your neighborhood right now, at least mentally. What I would like you to do next is, because what we're actually doing is uh, something that is often referred to as a deep map as well. So it's not just a mapping of your environment, but it's also about the emotional layering and the meaning of what that place has to you. So what I'd like you to do next is make a short list of how to prep if you're gonna go out on this grocery trip, right? Like uh, depending on the weather, do, do you need, or where you live? Like I, I expect we're calling in from all these different parts of the world. Do you need to check what the weather is? Like I'm in the Arctic right now. I can't just walk out with a t-shirt on. It really depends on, on the day. Do I bring my, my reusable shopping bag? Do I need to consult anybody? Do I live with housemates? Uh, are we running out of coffee or toilet paper? Or am I going to go on to a party? Like, do I need to bring something? So yeah, think about everything that you need to actually think about before you leave the house, even though this is a day-to-day -day activity. You make a lot of choices and decisions before you undertake this. And then I want you to also think about one or two places on your route that invoke an emotion or a personal memory to you. This can be a landmark that you just added into your map, but it can also be just a tree, right? That maybe doesn't mean anything to any other bypasser, but for you, it's an important tree or a piece of playing ground or anything, a corner of the street where you have uh, an, an, a memory of a nice date or something like that. So I'd like you to come up with one or two places on your route that mean something specific to you. You can mark them with like a little symbol, make a legenda on your map to kind of like indicate that a special place to you. So again, I'm gonna give you about five minutes or so to also think about that, right? Those two things. So preparation list and two special places.
All right, I'm gonna slowly invite you back in here again. So yeah, what you now have hopefully is a, is a, is a route to a place that you wayfare through every day without really think, thinking about it, I think often. And now hopefully you've been embodied a little bit more perhaps in the choices that you make as you walk to your grocery store or to your corner shop or whatever. So what I want you to do next is we're, we're gonna put you in small breakout rooms one-on-one -on -one, and I'm gonna give you another seven minutes or something. So what I'd like you to do is invite the other person that you're gonna be linked up with through your wayfaring map. And as you do so, uh, I would like you to think about how you would like this other person to engage with this special place that you've marked on your map. Do you want them to even know about it? You can choose to not point it out at all as you kind of explain your route to the grocery store. Or do you want them to kind of like passively enjoy that space, like the beauty based on your experience that you had there? Or would you like them to actively engage with it? So are you passing like a bridge that has locks on them? Do you want them to add a lock? Do you want them to hug your favorite tree? Do you want them to maybe sit down and take a minute to enjoy the water and the ducks that are on your on your route. So think about how you would like the other person to engage with your particular special place as you explain to them how to walk to your grocery store and how to prepare for it, what to bring, and how to engage with this route. I would like you to take turns. It's going to be two of each in, in a breakout room. Take three minutes, not too long, but just invite the other along on your journey.
Welcome back. I just want to invite some of you uh, to share two things, really, of this experience together. One is, how much do you feel that you could come together through this tour? Did you really experience, from a sensory perspective, what it's like to walk through Tokyo or whatever other place you've been uh, guided around just now? And the other thing that I'm very interested in is, did you feel that you could negotiate difference with each other, right? So when you have these very important spaces that are sacred to you, do you feel that this wayfaring could help you negotiate those spaces together? Like, could wayfaring in a way be a guideline to ethical engagement, especially at the points where we might defer, where we feel that we maybe not share the same experiences, but we can still come together in our differences. So, so that's what I'm very curious about, how you experienced that when, when you were talking with each other. And also, feel free when you're speaking to hold up your map to the camera if you want. I was just explaining to Bella that it was the map is more of a tool to get you into a certain mindset than that it's necessarily about the map itself. But if you want to share, like, please do. Yeah, I don't know if anybody wants to share a little bit about their wayfaring journeys. Thanks, Saskia. I'm going to nominate Dan because he had an interesting uh, experience to, to share with us. Dan, sorry to pick on you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not quite sure which interesting experience you're referring to, uh, but my, I think my kind of initial thoughts to your question, including, sorry, my cat is playing around. My initial thought to your question about wayfaring and things like that is just how little I feel like I was actually able to explain my roots to Tawana and Khadija. So, you know, I had it mapped out and I kind of, I mentioned the things that I really wanted to communicate, but I was aware that this was like really kind of superficial in terms of when you think of all the experiences and things that there are in this, on this route and in this space. So I think well, in terms of wayfaring, I feel like I was able to communicate kind of what was important to me in this space. But at the same time, I was thinking, wow, there's so much I'm just not getting across. And that's not their fault in not understanding it. And that's kind of making me think about doing interviews with research participants and just sort of when you're trying to interpret the knowledge that they're giving you, you know, you still there's so much you're not getting and you have to be mindful of that. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what came to mind. No, absolutely. That's also why this is an open question, right? Because as I'm realizing through my conversations with Leonard and many other people that I'm working with here, how the knowledge is indeed so much, like all our knowledge is so much rooted in these routes that we take every day and the way that we move through the environment. So there's, there's always going to be limitations to how that's what I'm saying, like coming together in difference, right? Like you'll never take the same path, regardless if you're even walking the same streets. Like it's going to be a different experience for everybody. Thank you for sharing that. One thing I enjoyed from uh, Dan's as well is the kind of the negotiation between cyclists and uh, pedestrians on, on the same path. So it, it's making me think of your question about how much coming together and how much respecting difference there is because... Um, we kind of wayfare in our own unique ways, depending on what our way is or what our the things that we bring on that journey. So that's that's quite interesting for me. Yeah, I, I went on a rant about pedestrians that don't respect cycle lanes, <laughs> and I was saying that you know it, it annoys me every time. But also, I understand that if you've never cycled or you don't cycle, then it, it, you don't really understand why. It's annoying for cyclists, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of related to what Dan was saying. Um, so I, I drew a map of walking my child to school and we often walk as a family. So I've got a child and a dog. And I think that their perspectives informed what I put on my map, like the ice cream truck is on the map. It's not something I would have put on, I think if I did the walk always by myself. But it's really important when you walk, when you walk with your kid, and the supplies list of things to bring include like a backpack and dog treats and poop bags because those are things that I have to bring when I walk with them. Um, and I think if if I didn't typically go with these people on this walk, the map would would look really different, um, and the supply list would be much shorter. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's so thank you for bringing that up because that's uh, part of the reason why I asked this is um, so like I said, it's spring right now here um, in Coral Harbor. So the whole town is preparing for this upcoming season, right? Like everybody's building their sleds, their kamutiks. To be honest, there's not a lot of time for research. But this, I think when, when you look at wayfaring, it's also about the timing and the season and who you're with, right? And who you're aiming to collaborate with and how to prepare for that. So like, is spring the best time to come and do research in Coral Harbor? Probably not. Perhaps if we use wayfaring as a, as a guideline for collaborating, uh, the preparation and the timing and the seasons uh, should come into that as well. How are your activities dictated to a certain degree by the seasons, which is much more the case in the Arctic than it is perhaps in an urban environment. These, these are all lessons that I'm, I'm taking on on my own wayfaring journey, where I have to adapt some of my plans because of the seasonal circumstances right here. So yeah, that, that's why I, I also asked you to include what other people are connected to this day-to-day -day trip. And yeah, just including the, the ice truck because you're walking this with your kid is a, is a perfect example of that. Thank you. I'm going to share a link in the chat of a Jamboard. If you have time, please, it's a very simple one to five scale that I'd like you to kind of like type out on the Jamboard. On the left-hand side, you have a, a little menu if you follow the link. There's a little text marker that you could use. Just fill out how you experienced this. It would be of help for me. Thank you for joining me and sharing your experiences. Thank you so much, Saskia. So, so interesting. And uh, it's gotten me thinking a lot about um, the ancient uh, hunters of my homeland of Zimbabwe and how they looked at the land and other species around them. And this idea of kin as well, because we have totem names that are related to mostly animals and plants, that kind of thing. So yeah, there's, there's so much here to, to take away. And uh, Bella will be sending you a penalty for going over by two minutes. <laughs> you owe me two beers. <laughs> Saskia, please give our regards to Leonard and wish him well from us too. Mekani Saskia, Totenda, Totenda. And thanks everyone for this uh, very fun <laughs> session. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.